Turn to the book of James. It's near the, uh, the back of the Old Testament. If you get to Hebrews, just go a little bit more. If you get to Revelation, go back to your left, and you will find James, and we're going to start at James chapter 1. James 1, the first 12 verses, and again, as always, let's listen carefully as this is the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it desperately. We need to be reminded of where wisdom comes from and why we need it. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the trials of our lives. Thank you that James is a letter that shows unwise people like us, how to be wise, how to walk, how to live in wisdom. Thank you that James points us to the one who is in himself the wisdom from God. We need the wisdom he offers. Help us to understand your word and to develop the faith in Christ that James will speak into our hearts. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Fill in the blank. Life will get easier when? I find it interesting that our oldest member has already started laughing. It starts when we're young, doesn't it? Life will get easier when I finally have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Life will get easier when I don't have that boyfriend or girlfriend. Life will get easier when I finally get into the college that I've dreamed of. Life will get easier when I'm finally a senior and looking for a real job. Life will get easier when I get my next job. Life will get easier when I get married. Life will get easier when I get divorced. Life will get easier when the kids move out. Life will get easier when I retire. See, all of us have our when, don't we? And the when that we have is where we tend to put our faith. 
That when is what we strive for, what we live for, what we look for. But the problem with the when is that they never come, do they? And as soon as you get there, it's replaced by a new when. Instead, what shows up instead of that when are trials, difficulties, hardships, one after the other. As a friend of mine put it, life never lets up, does it? It always keeps coming. And so James gives us guidance for when life gets hard. And I want us to see from these verses in James that James teaches us that God is at work to grow our faith when life gets hard. But before we get there, we have to ask, who is this James? Who is this James? By way of introduction, I'm not going to say much about what the book is about because that's going to be revealed as we go through it. So instead of looking at the book, let's look at the one who wrote it. We really can't ignore this. If you want to understand the book, you need to understand the person who wrote it. And verse 1 gives us an introduction. There's a great story behind it. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. Now, who is this? There are a number of people in the Bible named James. There was James, the brother of John, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But there was one man who came to be one of the four pillars of the early church. In the very first generation of Christians, we had Peter, Paul, John, and James, the acknowledged leaders of the early church. They were the pillars. But this James was the great leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is James, the brother of Jesus himself. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. He's a younger brother, of course, because Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph before they were married. So he's one of Jesus' younger brothers. He was raised with Jesus, and we know from history he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. Tradition and history tell us he's the writer of this letter. He almost has to be because this James... James, who's the brother of Jesus, is far and away the most prominent and famous James in the early church. Any other James would have had to distinguish himself somehow. Any other James would be called James the this, son of uh, Alphaeus, or James the that, brother of John. Anybody who can write a letter and just say, James, has to be this James, the brother of Jesus. This James had been raised in the same house with Jesus. Jesus was his big brother. He'd eaten with Jesus. He probably had to share a bed with Jesus. Now, every so often, and we've seen this repeatedly in recent days, you have some celebrity, and everybody thinks they're just great. But then somebody comes along and writes an expose to show you their flaws, to show you how awful they really are, to show you their human side, to show you their sins. Who are the people who do that? Well, most of the time, it's the daughters and sons and brothers and sisters and wives and husbands because they live with them. I mean, if anybody's going to see your sin, it's your little brother. I mean, you treat your little brother like dirt, right? I know. I'm a little brother. 
my sister is wonderful now. But back then, you know what I'm talking about. Your little brother sees all your indifference. Your little brother sees all your heartlessness. Your little brother sees your ego and pride and all your faults. And this James is a little brother. But this is a little brother who's willing to say, I've seen Jesus up close, up close, and he is the Lord. Now that tells us that the morals, the integrity, the quality of life, the words and deeds and wisdom and consistency and character of Jesus must have been unparalleled. No little brother has ever said that of a big brother like ever at any time in history for someone to live with him since he was little and say, this is the Lord. But the other part of this great story behind this verse is, in fact, we know from the Bible, James didn't always say that. He didn't always say the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. At one point, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. I mean, they're brothers. They made fun of him. They scorned him. It's not that hard to believe. Sometimes we have a lot of trouble treating people inside our family with the same honor that people outside the family treat them. Isn't that right? Why? Because of our pride. We say, what makes him so special? What makes her so great? I wiped her nose. I changed his diaper. What makes them special? It's pride. His brothers rejected him. James didn't believe But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to a number of people. And from what we can tell, he almost always appeared to groups, uh, even though he did appear to Mary. He appeared to Peter, James, and John, the other uh, James. But there's only one person, from what we can tell, that he had a special appearance with. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he appeared to James, this James, then to all the apostles. He appeared by himself to his brother James. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. We don't know what he said, but here's what I think may have happened. The Bible doesn't tell, so this is conjecture. So don't go off and say, the pastor said this and Jesus said that because basically I'm making all this up. This is biblical imagination. And it's not original to me. I'm stealing it from somebody smarter than me. But James can't miss the fact that he's the one and the true prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15? Jesus tells a parable to the Pharisees because they felt they were so very superior to sinners like you and me. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story, and I'm going to summarize. There's two sons, wealthy father, and the younger son decides to reject the authority of the father and takes half his inheritance and goes off and squanders it and makes a wreck of his life. Eventually he comes back and says, Father, I am not worthy to be your son. Take me in as a servant. But what does the father do? He says, get out a robe. Get out a ring. Bring my son back into the family. He was dead, but now he lives. He was lost, but now he's found. But then Jesus tells us that the elder brother gets upset about the whole thing. Why? Because the elder brother says, hey, He squandered his inheritance. And if you're going to bring him back in the family, you can only do this at my expense. Every robe's going to be mine. 
Every ring's going to be mine. For you to bring him back in, it's at my expense, and I won't have it. Why does the parable tell us that? Because, first of all, Jesus is telling it to the Pharisees. He's pointing to them as professional elder brothers. He's saying, you know what? You shouldn't feel so superior to lost sinners. But he's also pointing beyond the Pharisees. Because if you read Luke 15, you'll know there's two other parables right in front of it. One about a lost coin and one about a lost sheep. And in both of them, Jesus is showing us he's the true one who goes after the lost one. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the lost sheep and brings it back. So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the true elder brother. There is no way for you to come back into my family after having rejected the father except at my expense. I'm the true elder brother. I'm the one who goes out in the wilderness and finds the lost boy. I put him on my shoulders and I bring him back and I set him down and say, there's no way for you to get back into this family except at my expense. But I give it to you gladly. My robe, my ring, my body, my blood, all yours, gladly. And I think that's what he said to his real little brother, this James. He says, James, little brother, the only way for you to come back is at my expense. But I've come for you. My body, my blood, my robe, my ring, it's all the grace, but I give it all up for you, gladly. Now lead my church. And what a man this James becomes. Because when you know you've been received back by your true elder brother who says, I come for you and I gladly give you all of this at my expense, then you're ready for anything. And one of the most amazing things about this, James, is found in Acts 15. We're told the first big problem came up in the church. It was a big issue about Jews and Gentiles and how they're relating to each other. And they had a big council meeting, and everybody was there, and James was the chairman. Now, if you're on a team, and you also have on your team uh, St. Peter and St. Paul and St. John, and you get elected the captain, that's something. This James becomes a great man of God, even though he had blown it. He missed three years with Jesus due to unbelief. He didn't really believe who Jesus was until after he was gone. And Jesus could have said, never mind, you had your shot, you blew it. And yet he becomes a great man of God because of grace. Because Jesus came back and said, I'm the true elder brother. Now, eventually, church history teaches us that the enemies of the gospel took this James in AD 62 to the pinnacle of the temple and said, there's too many people becoming Christians. This is what the historians tell us. Again, it's not in the Bible. They said, too many people are becoming Christians, so we want you to tell them not to turn to Christ. I don't know what they thought he was going to do but they're telling turn the people to turn away from Jesus. And we're told by the historians that James looked out and called down to all the people watching and said, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven at the right hand of the mighty power. He will come in clouds of heaven. And in anger, they threw him off. And he fell to the ground and shattered on impact. But he wasn't dead yet. 
They say badly broken. He twisted up to his knees and began to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies. And at that point, they came down and stoned him and beat him until he was dead. Remember that. Because it's this James who says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because this James wants you to have the wisdom to receive God's work by faith. That's the first blank in your outline. The wisdom to receive God's work by faith. It doesn't say count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials. It says when you meet trials. There's that when again. This means anything that can happen to any person can happen to a Christian. Don't think that because you're a Christian, certain things couldn't happen to you. That's not the case. History says otherwise. The Bible says otherwise. Personal experience says otherwise. That's not the case. Not at all. Trials are inevitable. They're going to happen. You know, I read a book about our culture. And it has this really interesting point. It says there's never been a time or place where people were more squeamish and unhappy about suffering than they are right now. In every culture, every other society, every other time, people haven't been the complainers that we are. They knew life was unfair. They knew life was short and brutal, and they just took it. No other time or place where people complain so much about how life is unfair. There's a whole lot of reasons why, and that's basically what the rest of the book talks about. But one of the main reasons is we're a secular society. Because this is what secular means. The word secular comes from the Latin word seculum, which means now. This is what a secular society teaches you. You have to get your happiness now. If anything goes wrong with your health, now it's over. If anything goes wrong with your love, now it's done. You're done. If anything goes wrong with your money now, you're ruined. There's never been a culture that has set its people up like this one, made them so vulnerable to the hardships of life like this one has. And yet this James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. And we need to talk about that a little bit because that's probably not on your list of things to be praying for. James isn't a masochist or a hedonist. On the one hand, he's not saying enjoy your trials. He doesn't say trials, have a great time. On the other hand, he doesn't say you will never have any joy until the trials go away. Until this is over, you can't have any joy. You're just going to have to put up with it. He doesn't say either of those things. He's not a hedonist who says, unless your life is going well, you can't have joy. And he's not a masochist who says, it's great to have trouble. He doesn't say either of those things. He says, if you learn how to think, and if you learn how to handle trouble, then you can find joy in the trouble. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because, he goes on, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some versions translate that word as perseverance or endurance. And then verse 4, 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is the first thing you have to do. You have to realize that God can make great things happen in your life through suffering. You have to be willing to receive them as the work of God in your life by faith. Suffering can bring things into your life that aren't there now. You're incomplete now. You're imperfect now. And so this James says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Well, how? A couple things real quick. Without suffering, I don't know how you develop some of these uh, character qualities, humility, freedom, compassion, and faith. I don't know how you develop those without suffering. First, humility. There's no humility without suffering. You have no idea how little you know You have no idea how weak you are. You have no idea how much you need God. There's really no way to know that apart from suffering. Suffering leads you to humility. Second, freedom. You know what suffering really is. Suffering is when God takes away something that you think you have to have. Could be a person, could be a job, could be a thing. God takes away something that you don't think you have to have. That's not suffering. Say, I don't need that. That's not suffering. It's only suffering when God takes away something that you think you have to have. And then God takes it away and you survive. You start to think, those things I I thought I had to have, I didn't really need them. It's only through suffering you get freedom from the things that possessed you. Third, compassion. I think this is the easiest one to understand because it's much of our experience How many of you know because of some real trouble that you faced, you now understand other people in a way that you never would have understood them before, that you wouldn't have cared about them before, you never would have been able to relate to them before. Suffering makes you compassionate. And then fourth, faith. Because when suffering comes, there's sort of God saying, there's this voice, are you going to run? Are you going to turn away? You know what this is revealing? Now we kind of get to the point. Did you get into Christianity to get me to serve you? Or did you get into Christianity for you to serve me? Which is it? Because there's no way to this kind of humility, to this kind of compassion, to this kind of freedom, to this kind of faith without suffering, which will make you complete. Count it all joy when you receive the work of God in your life by faith. But this James isn't done because this James uh, knows that you need the wisdom to request God's work by faith, to request God's work, verses 5 through 8. These verses are dealing with suffering, dealing with trouble. So we look at these verses, and it's easy to forget the context of suffering. And if you do that, you'll be misled because This section actually makes no reference to suffering. Starting at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So if you miss the context, you may think these verses are about faith or prayer or wisdom in general. 
and you'll go astray if you think that way. You have to understand this is linked very tightly to what we looked at in the first four verses. This James says when you suffer, it'll make you complete, perfect, mature. It can furnish those qualities you lack. And then verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. It's giving you an illustration. See, the point's not talking about wisdom in general. It's not talking about prayer in general or faith and doubt in general. It's talking about when you're suffering, when you're troubled, when you're facing trials and tribulations, the main thing you need is wisdom. How are you going to get it? Well, that's what this is all about. It's trying to say the thing you need, the first thing you should check for when you fall into trials and suffering is do you have the wisdom for this? That's what you need. When you're going to face suffering, you need wisdom. Now, it's pretty clear that's not the way we think anymore. C.S. Lewis once said, it's always a good sermon if you can quote C.S. Lewis. Somebody said that somewhere. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, virtue. For the modern man, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. So wisdom is, how in the world do I address life as it is? How do I conform my soul to reality? And the answer is wisdom. But today the question is, how do I conform reality to what I want? And the answer is a method, a technique, a pill, a how-to book. It's completely different. James is telling us that C.S. Lewis is right. He didn't actually know C.S. Lewis. Anyway, but he's saying what you need is wisdom. When you go through anything, we just talked about times of trouble. That was the last six weeks. This is the the follow-on to that series. Because James said, you go through anything, depression, debilitating experience, grief, you've lost a loved one, anything that comes along. You can go to the bookstore and read the books, and they'll say, this is how it works. This is what you have to do. Here's seven steps. Don't buy books that say the seven steps to Just don't. Here's how you change the situation to match your feelings. And yet James is saying you need to match your heart to reality, and that's wisdom. And this James says, if you lack that wisdom, if you don't know how to do that, I promise you that God will give it to you. All you have to do is ask. This is an unconditional declaration. If you lack wisdom and you want to be able to look at your problems like this, uh, James says, but you're not you don't know how. You want to make wise decisions based on God's word, but you, don't be able, you can't find the energy uh, to do that. You can't figure it out. You don't seem to be able to give up what you want or your desires. This James says, here's what you need to do. Ask God. Big issue in life, the pastor says, pray. Of course, you knew that was the right answer. But that's what James says. He says, ask the Father to give you that kind of wisdom. 
Not the kind of wisdom that lets you figure out all the great secrets about God, but the kind of wisdom that lets you believe what God said in his word about your life, about your suffering, about your faith, and he'll give it to you. But this James isn't done yet. Because this James knows that you also need wisdom to reflect on God's work by faith. So first we saw that suffering is inevitable. Second, one of its purposes is to make us wise. But now he gives an example of two different trials, starting at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. This passage is about trials. And the reason you know that it is because verse 12 says it is. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So then... Verses 9 to 11 are still about trials and troubles, but here's what's so strange. This James gives us examples in different situations how to handle them with wisdom. He gives us two little case studies. He says, let the lowly brother, person in adversity, probably poverty, it's that person for whom everything's fallen apart economically, uh, they've been laid off, their career's falling apart, and I'm not going to spend any time there. Because the second example is so much more applicable to Loudoun County. Because it says, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. You know what? This James is telling us something we don't know. But the old writers knew. John Flavel was an old Puritan from the 1600s. He wrote a marvelous little book called Keeping the Heart. He has a list of 12 situations, and he says these are spiritually dangerous situations. And if you're in those situations, you have to be extra careful and diligent to keep the heart. Times of great trial, and if you're not careful, you'll fall into a terrible spiritual situation. He goes through them. You mentioned sickness or death approaching, time of persecution. He makes a list. You know what the number one trial is? He wrote this in the 1600s. The number one difficulty is prosperity. In other words, as the Bible teaches, as this James is teaching, as John Flavel is teaching, the greatest trouble is to have no trouble. The greatest spiritual trial is to have no trial. That's the biggest spiritual danger there is. The greatest spiritual danger is a lack of danger. The greatest spiritual trouble is having no troubles at all. Aren't you encouraged? Great. See, verse 11 says that like the grass and flower, so also the rich man, will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And this is what's so hard about prosperity. When things are going well, you don't get to see the real reason for troubles. Here's what makes trouble a trouble. You've hitched your heart to something that fades. So when it fades, you fade with it. That's the problem with wealth in general. We tend to think the more money you have, the better your life's going to be. We think the more you move up the ladder, the better your career is going. And this is the danger. You set your heart on things that are going to fade. Therefore, you become like the thing that fades. 
There's a wonderful novel by, against C.S. Lewis. It's toy. He, he wrote this novel called The Great Divorce. It's brilliant. And in this novel, there's a scene where a busload of people from hell get off on the outskirts of heaven. And when they get out of the bus, their feet hurt. They can't walk on the grass. And have you read that? Do you remember why? Because heaven is the place of things that last. Heaven is the place of things that are solid. See, they're kind of wispy. They're kind of ghostly. They can't walk on the grass. The grass hurts their feet. The grass cuts. The grass is harder than they are. They have faded away. And trials and troubles reveal the fading things you use, the fading things you build your life on. Your troubles in the hands of God can be made wonderful. It's the reason a lack of trouble is the biggest trouble of all, to show you the things that make you weak, the parts of you that are fading. What you have to do is say, Jesus suffered for me, and his suffering for me proves that I'm important, that I'm valuable, that I'm worthwhile. The Bible says the grass is here today and gone tomorrow. The mountains seem to be here for millions of years, but even they're going to fade. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. The mountains are nothing compared to your life. You are more real than the mountains. And the way you know that is he suffered for you, and the way you become more real is by suffering for him. I don't know how many of you remembered the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. I know the Nassau team's collecting lots of children's books. So I was thinking about this. I haven't read it for years, so. But in that book, The Velveteen Rabbit, we read, real isn't how you're made, says the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. These are toys talking. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. That's beautiful. But it's actually not enough. Because, you know, sometimes suffering is so bad that you are not going to say, oh, joy, I'm going to become a mature, complete person. This will be great. It's not enough. You have to consider, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. You don't just handle suffering by thinking about what God can do in your life. You handle suffering because you say, I want perseverance and endurance. I want to be steadfast in the faith no matter what happens in my life. Steadfastness is an important word. It's a Greek word, hypomeno. Hyper means intense. 
Meno means to stand. So what's endurance? It means to stand your ground, to stand intensely. And that's what this James says. You need to develop. When you face trials and tribulations, suffering, you need to develop the ability to stand intensely. Let me tell you about someone who understands what it means to endure, to stand intensely. I have four slides of could show the first one. His name is Andrew. He's the son of my friend, a PCA pastor in Mississippi. Andrew has leukemia. He's had it for four years. Four years of chemo. Four years of not being able to play baseball, his favorite sport. You know I like this kid. Second slide, please. He had one good month this year, and he got to go to to see the St. Louis Cardinals. And they brought him down into the clubhouse to meet the players. His favorite player is Yadier Molina, the all-star catcher of the Cardinals. This is cool. Yadier took him out on the field. They played catch. That's awesome. Andrew's going to have surgery tomorrow to remove his spleen and to replace his port. This will be his third port. He was measured last Thursday for his radiation treatments. He'll have 11 rounds of chest radiation and then weekly outpatient chemo treatments. Can I have the third slide? That's Andrew this week. He needs a bone marrow transplant. They said it's doubtful he'll survive without it. Andrew knows more about physical suffering than most. And I can tell you that his parents know more about emotional suffering that comes from watching him endure and endure and endure. I'm in a company of pastors that meets online once a month. His dad is in my group. We pray for Andrew. We signed up for his prayer team, Team Andrew. Of course, I ordered the T-shirt, fourth slide. Quotes Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We pray for his dad. His dad's name is Perry. Perry doesn't know if he's coming or going. He pastors two churches, and he teaches at a Christian school full-time, and he's going to the hospital every single day for the last four years. It's going to be harder than I thought. Last Saturday, June 2nd, Perry wrote on Facebook about Andrew's four-year mark in the land of leukemia. This is what he said. I post very little these days, for there's too much to say, and I find myself unable to communicate all the things I want to say. Last Sunday marked 209 Lord's Days since leukemia. 177 in treatment, 23 in post-treatment, 9 in relapse. Countless Saturdays, I wished I wasn't going to be in the pulpit. Not because I was tired, not because I didn't want to. Not because I didn't want to worship. No, the Lord's Day with his people has been the essential and steady joy throughout this trial. 
My dread always came from the lack of preparation and my sinful failures and weaknesses exposed in the heat of the refiner's fire the previous week. I've always grieved how sinful I'd been as a young man, but in the land of leukemia, God has graciously, graciously shown me how sinful I can still be. Oh, the wonderful and matchless grace of Jesus. So I praise God that his power rests in his word and not in me. I praise God that his love flows from his grace and not my performance. I cannot earn any more of God's love by my performance. His love is already given beyond measure in Christ. Praise God that his glory is displayed in his faithfulness and not our performance. Praise God that his will and his purposes and his grace cannot be thwarted by the weaknesses of people. Praise God for all the Lord's days that I walked into the sanctuary. Thankful I decided not to take the morning off. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Hebrews 12, 2 says we need to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God endured it's the same word from James 1 to stand intensely the reason Jesus stood and took hell itself the wrath of God was that he loved us God poured out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus didn't let go he stood intensely steadfast love and now Jesus says to you look what I endured for you my perseverance is the crown jewel of your life. Look how I loved you no matter what. That's the reason today there's no condemnation for you. If Jesus' love for you was so great that he endured that for you, do you really think that your little sins are going to scare him away or wear him out? Jesus says, through my suffering... I persevered. Through my suffering, I stayed with you. Now my perseverance is the joy of your life. Now I want you to suffer for me and with me. You're not married and you want to be. You're not promoted and you want to be. You don't have any friends and you want some. You're sick. You're facing death. I want you to be steadfast, to persevere, to endure, to stand your ground intensely for me. Don't say, I can persevere because it'll make me a better person. Say, I can persevere because Jesus persevered for me. Jesus stood there for me. Jesus took it all for me. And if you count it all joy, then you will stand fast and you'll develop a heart of wisdom. And if you don't think that's possible, I know a 14-year-old boy in Mississippi they would like to talk to you. You need to pray. Pray for wisdom. Take a moment to do that and I'll get it together and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess that although we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when troubles come. 
So, Father, we, make, we ask that you would make it possible for us, as we consider what your son Jesus did for us, that we might be able to stay and stand and obey you in the midst of the troubles we have. If that's possible and if that's what we can do, you will complete us and make us mature and you'll make us more like Jesus. Father, give us the wisdom that comes from above. Thank you that you've told us so many things in your word that if we apply them will help us to receive your wisdom, to receive suffering in a way that we will become mature, lacking in nothing. This is difficult territory. Most of us are wrestling under the weight of painful things. Help us to see how much our trials and suffering are aggravated by our own foolishness. Help us to see that because of Jesus, we are real and we are permanent because Jesus suffered for us and we become more real and more permanent as we suffer for him. Forgive us and work in us this summer as we go through James. Teach us how to request the wisdom that comes from above and to receive it and to reflect on it. So we will become like your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.